Exodus 13, beginning at verse 17. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it, dear friends. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord our God, help us, having just read and reading again, help us to understand and treasure all that we ponder tonight from your holy word as it is proclaimed in our midst. Would you grant us the Holy Spirit's ministry to unstop our ears and peel away scales from our eyes and Grant us minds and hearts of understanding. And in doing so, would you get much glory for yourself in the hearts of your people? For this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times do we have to pack things or bring things or store up things, even though we don't necessarily need them right at that moment? We may not even need them anytime soon, but we dutifully store them up and keep them handy because the time may come sooner or later, and when that time comes, we're going to be really glad that we have that item close at hand. When I was a child, my parents almost always insisted that I bring a a thermos with me whenever we went on a car trip, you know, filled with juice or water or whatever. Now, even if it was just a short drive, it's just a short drive, mom and dad, I would object. Even though I'm not thirsty right now, yes, bring it anyway. I always thought that the chore was unnecessary, and most of the time, I wasn't terribly thirsty and wouldn't even touch the drink until we got all the way back home. But I dutifully brought it along just the same. I always thought it was unnecessary. Until that one day when we were driving along the highway on a hot summer day and the engine malfunctioned. Now, I couldn't quite remember what happened, but this was, believe it or not, back in the days before cell phones. Some of you can't imagine such a world where it existed prior to the ubiquity of cell phones, but this really was such a world. Dad was away at work, and we had to walk to the nearest gas station in order to make a phone call for the AAA to come and rescue us. Then we walked back to the car, waited for another hour, by the way, with no engine running and no air conditioner available in the heat. So you can bet that I was glad to have that nearly that nearly liter jug of water with us on that day. The old saying goes, plan ahead. After all, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. So many times when we come to the Holy Scripture, we might come asking the question, whether it's in our sermons that we're listening to, whether it's in our own personal devotions, 
our family worship, as we're reading along, we might come, even if we don't articulate it, there's this this nagging question that lingers in the back of our mind. How do the truths that are taught here apply to me in my life and my current situation? And often it seems like, well, I don't know that they do, at least not in an obvious way. Or maybe that's a little too individualistic. Maybe that's a little too selfish and American-sounding and egotistical, and it, it rips the passage out of context. Maybe so. So maybe a better question that we subconsciously come asking is, how do the truths here speak to the life situation of God's people? What are the life applications? What are the rubber meets the road truths? What are the life truths that we should take away from this text? In other words, if all this is true that I've just been reading in the Bible, so what? How does it impact me? And everywhere in Scripture, there is truth to life application for us to glean and take away and meditate upon. Many times, though, the lessons, while true, they don't strike us as immediately applicable. It's not that they're wrong. It's not that we think that they're unimportant. It's just that they don't seem immediately germane, given the life circumstances of us as individuals or families or as a congregation even or a denomination or perhaps even a culture at this particular time. I mean, think how many times we read the Psalms, beautiful and poignant and full of pathos as they are. But they're speaking of a situation where a man is being pursued hotly by violent men who want to kill him. And he learns in his desperation that he needs to repent of his own self-reliance and his self-assurance and to seek his refuge and stake his trust and hope solely on the resources and mercy of God, his Lord. So many of the Psalms, that, that's the context and that's the lesson. And so we, we read it and we, we ponder it and we meditate upon it. We maybe even pray through it, but we might come away quietly thinking, well, that's great and that's true, but I'm not really being tempted to trust in my own strength or ingenuity right now on account of the fact that people want to hunt me down and kill me due to my Christianity. So I, I don't know how this relates That's just one example. I dare say that the doctrine of God's providence is often like that. We we accept it, we recite it, the doctrine of God's providence, but almost sometimes as rote. Why did this happen? Yeah, 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 God's providence. Everything happens in God's providence. That's why everything takes place, God's providence. But if we're not careful, that, that word or that doctrine can become one of our throwaway lines that we just toss out there almost irreverently, maybe even flippantly. And many times it can happen because we're not steeped in the midst of crisis and turmoil at this particular moment. And so the notion of God's providence may not seem especially pointed or precious to us. But for those saints, for those of you who are now or have been in recent times steeped in the midst of pain and frustration and heartache and hardship, you know how precious the doctrine of God's providence is. The truth that God works all things, all things, all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. To know that the Lord looks upon the earth and he sees the trials of his people, that he hears their cries, he hears their cries, and he knows how precious in the midst of despair are those words of Psalm 56. You, O Lord, have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. 
Are they not in your book? In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. See, when it comes to God's truth, is it possible that when we study the scripture, when we derive, we we exegete truth from it, even if we may not need to bank on that truth today, tomorrow, or next week, might it be that the truths we derive, the applications we derive, the lessons that we derive from Holy Scripture are things that we need to internalize, to, to store that truth up, to hide the word of God in our hearts, as the psalmist says, so that 10, 20, 65 years from now, when those floodgates have burst and when we are being pounded by wave after wave of difficulty and sorrow or hurt or death or apostasy or persecution, such that it feels like, like our faith is barely hanging on and we're, we're dangling off the cliff by fingernails, that it's then that we need to tap into the reserves of our soul, of those decades of truth that have been derived and stored up and gleaned and retained from a steady diet of God's word. And we draw strength and hope from those doctrines here in the moment that years ago were just merely hypothetical. There are those that we could ask tonight. There are those that we know. There are those that are even in this room. How do you endure wave after wave of cancer? Or those dealing with seeing a spouse's life in decline? Or how about those with unbelieving spouses? Or those who raised covenant children only to see them later in life walk away from the faith and reject Christ? And there's a hundred other examples we could give just from this room. I think of our church member back in Virginia who buried his son and his grandson and his other son and then eventually his wife all in a span of 18 months. How do you keep enduring? And he gave all kinds of deflecting answers, full of modesty and full of humility, but one of my favorites that he gave was this. How do you keep on enduring? Christ said he'd always be with us. I have to believe it. I just have to. To believe it. Though everything is awful, if God said it, it must be true. Now, though it might seem less than relevant today, do we not need to internalize the truths of God's holy word for tomorrow's yet to come? I would suggest to you that the answer is a resounding yes, and that storing up truth now during the proverbial years of plenty will better prepare us for years of spiritual famine or hardship that may yet come. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. And so to that end, I would like us to study this passage tonight with that thesis in mind along these three lines. God preserves his people, God's promises assure his people, and God's presence directs his people. God preserves his people, God's promises assure his people, and God's presence directs his people. So first, God preserves his people. Let's look at verses 17 and 18, first of all. The people of Israel have at last, after many dangers, toils, and snares, four centuries of bondage, they have made their way out of slavery in Egypt. Actually, to be more precise, they've been thrown out of Egypt, haven't they? They've been expelled from Egypt. Until now, as one man points out, Egypt has done everything that she could to preserve the slave labor of the Hebrews. And as a result, God has judged Egypt with terrible judgments. The ten plagues, 
climaxing in the death of the firstborn, so that now, this side of the judgment of God, the Egyptians are more than eager to be rid of the Hebrews. And as we saw in plague after plague after plague, it was made abundantly clear back in chapter 12, verse 12, that the Lord had judged the gods of Egypt. This is the state in which Egypt now finds herself. Her gods are judged. Pharaoh was humiliated. The gods of Egypt were shamed and exposed as impotent. The Egyptian priests were frauds. Their religion was hapless. And Pharaoh's sinful stubbornness has rendered the firstborn of every family and even the livestock dead. It is a night of deep darkness and anguish. We left off at verse 32 last time there in chapter 12. And so at chapter 12, verse 32, we hear Pharaoh saying, Be gone, up, get out of my land. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So Israel is pushed out of the land, and we see 600,000 men, not including women and children, as well as a vast mixed multitude, it says, of Egyptians and others going along with the Israelites come out of the land. And chapter 12, verse 37 tells us of their moving from Ramses to Sukkoth, a couple cities on the eastern edge of Egypt's territory, about, about eight miles apart. But then it takes a while to move what scripture seems to indicate is roughly a million plus people and animals a mere eight miles when you're hoofing it on foot. And then scripture gives us material on instruction on how to observe the Passover. And then we come to verse 17. And the way that the Lord directs them to travel on the surface here in these instructions at verse 17, on the surface at least it appears backwards. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, He did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. There's a, uh, if if, if you have your study Bibles that have those very handy maps in the back of your Bibles, oftentimes there'll be a map included there that traces out the projected route or the, the best estimate that we have of the route of traveling of the Israelites as they made their way out on the Exodus. And there's a line in some of those Bibles called the Way of Shur, S-H-U-R. That was a busy trade route from the Nile through northern Sinai on into Canaan. That the land of the Philistines was near that obvious roadway that they might have taken, and yet God sends them a different way. He sends them southeast instead, through the desert. That would be, just by way of comparison, like going from here to Washington, D.C. by way of Charlotte, North Carolina. It just doesn't make any sense. It's completely the wrong direction. It's entirely out of the way, and it's not a brief detour either. If they had taken the most direct route, it would have taken about two weeks' journey from where they were to the borders of the Promised Land. But as it is, on the route that God sends them on, it took them about a year finally to arrive at the edge of the land of Canaan. And as we'll see after that, they did not enter the land at that point, but they spent another 40-plus years wandering in the desert. Quite a detour. Not at all the quickest route. The most obvious and straightforward and sensible route seems like the best route to mortal minds, but the Lord always knows better. And the way God directs his people, the, the life circumstances that he brings us to and through providentially, Though often these ways are hard and counterintuitive and seemingly nonsensical, maybe we even sinfully think cruel. Israel needed to learn those lessons then, and we need the church to learn now 
that God's ways are always best in the end. Do you believe that, people of God? God's ways are always best in the end, despite whatever our sensibilities might be dictating to us to the contrary. And verse 17 is one of those rare instances where we are actually given the privilege to understand the reasoning behind a decision. Right? Oftentimes we're not privileged to know why the Lord does what he does. He, he gives an instruction and we simply have to trust and follow it without necessarily being given the ins, insight into God's rationale behind his command. But look at verse 17 again. For God said, and here's God's reasoning, lest the people change their minds when they see war and then want to return to Egypt. See, God knew what his people would encounter if they went along the most direct and common trade route, this way of sure. And he knew his people's hearts, and he knew their tendencies, and he knew how they would react. God knew that along that trade route, there were numerous Egyptian fortresses and military outposts protecting the land. There were soldiers scattered throughout there who would be more than happy to recapture this army of slave labor for the kingdom. God knew also that the Philistines were at the end of that route. And he knew that the Hebrews were in no shape for battle. Now, at verse 18, at the end of verse 18, the ESV translation, which is the one I read from, it says, they were equipped for battle. Now, the Hebrew there, might, it might be better translated as they left Egypt in formation or in rank or in organization. So not that they were equipped for battle with, with weapons and such, but rather that they are organized in an orderly fashion. They left Egypt in an orderly fashion might be a better translation of the Hebrew there. And the Lord knows that if the Israelites face war, if they face hardship, if they face danger, they are inclined to turn around and run back to bondage in Egypt. He knows his people's fickle hearts and weaknesses and inclinations. And moreover, years later, God has proved right. Numbers, chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Israel is on the border of Canaan. They take one look at the strength of their enemies, and you remember what they declare? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our lives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? There are times, aren't there, when we are tempted, like Israel, when we are tempted to wonder, what in the world is God thinking? This is a disaster to suggest that God's ordering of the events in our lives, that his ordering is unwise, that it perhaps is unjust and not good. One commentator put it like this. What Israel needed to learn, and perhaps what we, the church, need to learn too, is that whatever the appearance, the path which God ordains is for our good and his glory. It is a path much safer than any we might choose for ourselves. Were you captain of your own soul, you will make shipwreck of your life. It may seem counterintuitive, but his wisdom and his goodness are utterly dependable. Close quote. And so that's the first thing that we need to see here is that God's ways are always best, and God preserves his people. God always preserves his people. But then secondly, we see God's promises serve to assure his people. God's promises assure his people. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, 
and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Picture this, as, as one pastor helpfully pointed out. Here's this huge mass of refugees traveling, living like nomads in the desert. And they are going to face hunger and thirst. There will be times when they fall almost into outright apostasy, and God will discipline them. They will deal with sickness and war for over 40 years. They will endure all of this slogging their way to the promised land over deserts and mountains, through drought and famine, disease and war, through sin and spiritual growth. Even after an entire generation among them dies in the desert, even then, they keep lugging around these old bones of Joseph. Why in the world would they do that? Do they venerate Joseph? Were his bones sacred like some old Roman Catholic saint where the the people make a pilgrimage to go see the bones of Saint so-and-so? What's going on? Well, it's simply this. Joseph had made them promise to do this because Joseph himself was so utterly confident about the certainty of God's promises. So confident Joseph was that God would make good on his word that he made his descendants swear, bring my bones into the promised land. Because God will bring you there one day. I'm sure of it. Bury me there when that day comes. When Joseph made the sons of Israel make that vow on his deathbed, he didn't know precisely how God was going to accomplish it. How he was going, he he couldn't see from his vantage point how God would bring it to pass, but he was sure that the God who makes promises keeps them. And so he said, however long it'll be, take my bones home. And bury me in that plot of land where my ancestors are buried. Because it will happen. Visual reminders are helpful. Some of us have various things hanging in our office. They serve as subtle clues and visual reminders for us to keep pressing on, to keep believing. They remind us of what really matters. I have a a minister friend who keeps a, a portrait of John Owen in his study. John Owen, the great Puritan, who said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I asked him about that picture once, and he said, yep, I keep it there because he keeps me honest. I have a portrait of John Knox hanging in in my study, staring me down whenever I look up from my desk. Knox once boldly cried, give me Scotland or I die. In other words, he was saying, make the hearts of the people of Scotland all be one for Jesus Christ. There's nothing I desire more. And so when I start to despair over the state of the wider church or the state of our nation, I realize that I've barely even begun to pray and to labor. So Knox is a good rebuke for me. Well, these bones were a testimony to Joseph's utter confidence in the purpose and promise and providence of God. When Israel wandered far from obedience, when they were sinning and feeling sorry for themselves and they wanted to return back to Egypt, as they did, as they had that that desire again and again, Every time, here's these bones of Joseph, carried about as they were, their presence among the people of Israel, rebuking them silently and saying, I know better than you about the way God works, often leading us through strange paths and him working out his purposes. My whole life, my whole life, Joseph could say, is a testimony to that. You think I don't know about awful circumstances and not even knowing what God is up to and having to trust him By faith, not knowing what in the world is happening, you think I don't know about that, Israel. Our sacraments that we have here in the New Testament serve much the same purpose. We come to the Lord's table month after month. We come to the bread and the wine. And we taste and we 
hold and we feel and we eat and we drink these tangible, visual, tactile reminders. And every time we do, what do they say to us, at least in part? They say to us, God will keep his word. And God has done it. He has secured the salvation of his people. He has done what we never could. He has lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. And though we in our knuckle-headed sin would try, if we could, to sever this branch from the vine, he won't have it. Praise God he won't have it. This sacrament placards before our eyes the fact that though we are faithless, he is faithful. And we belong forever body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These bones of Joseph were a visual proclamation and a constant reminder to the Israelites in the desert. Brothers and sisters, very often we will never be led to understand the why of it all in God's dealing. Very often we'll never be given the answer. We may cry out why, we may pray why, we may wonder why, and very often we will not be given the answer to why. And that if we stake our comforts and our assurance and our peace, if we are dependent on an explanation, we may never find comfort and assurance and peace. But rather, the lesson for Israel and the lesson for all God's people from our passage is that our stability and our comfort does not come from knowing why, not ultimately. No, our comfort and our stability comes from the promise of God that he is faithful and gracious and good. As one man says, we don't always need to know why God is doing what he is doing, but he is good. His promises are true. Cling to them and find your peace and your rest there. Close quote. So that's the second thing. First, God preserves his people. Secondly, God's promises assure his people. And then thirdly and briefly, God's presence directs his people. God's presence directs his people. Look at verses 20 and 21 and 22. We get a little glimpse of Israel's travel itinerary in verse 20. They move from Sukkoth to Etham, uh, the edge of the wilderness. But notice that it was not Moses who led them there, nor were they using some kind of map to, to trace out a trail that they needed to follow. No, it was the very presence of God himself who guided them. God had appeared to Moses way back in Exodus chapter 3. Remember, in the fire of the burning bush. And now he appears again to Israel in the cloud and fire to lead his people as a whole. Day and night, never departing from before them. The the pillar was a visible manifestation of his personal presence. Theologians will often call this a theophany, a God appearance, if you like. When God shows up this way, he appears in a fiery cloud of glory. Sometimes it's called the Shekinah. We see that in Exodus 16, verse 10, and later on in Exodus 40, verse 34. It's an outward display of God's inward glory. He is with them. They do not go alone. Light by night and shade by day, he never leaves them. So many times when I talk to other Christians and maybe... You've had these kinds of conversations, too. I think we were just discussing it not long ago in either our our Sunday school class or our Wednesday night class. But so many times we speak to other Christians. Maybe you've had this thought enter your own mind that we think of Israel, we think of the nearness that they had, of the nearness to the presence of God, and we think they had it a lot better than we did, didn't they? They they had the, 
the glory cloud of the presence of God burning and blazing before the very eyes. Oh, if only we could have such splendor like that. Then we would always believe. Then we would always have confidence. Then we would never doubt. Just like Israel, right? Brothers and sisters, if we think that way, we really are undervaluing our privileges as believers in Jesus. You see, the presence of God that the Israelites had in the wilderness was at best, at best, a dim shadow of the full reality that we now enjoy. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, fulfilling what God had spoken in Joel chapter 2 and numerous other places, the Spirit of God was poured out and inhabited the hearts of the people of God. The prophets of old longed for the days. They longed for the days of the new covenant. They longed to peer into them, Scripture says, because they knew that the days were coming when the people of God would have something far better than they'd ever tasted and that they'd ever enjoyed. We have God putting his Holy Spirit in our very hearts to dwell with us forever so that we can tell of Christ in us the hope of glory. I love how one pastor puts it. He says this, Christian, You are far better off than the Hebrews under the cloud and fire. You have more light than they. You have more of God than they. You have Christ himself dwelling within you by his spirit who leads you and guides you by the scriptures, which back in the days of Moses, remember, was only partial. Scripture is only partial and incomplete. But now that Jesus has come in our day, the scriptures are full and finished and sufficient And God, who dwells in our hearts by his Spirit, never deserts us, but directs our steps, saying, this is the way, walk in it. Close quote. Beloved Covenant Presbyterian Church, God and his providence may indeed lead you to hard places, but because his Spirit now dwells within you, you may taste and see for yourself the reliability of the promises of God. That that is, how out of the very worst God brings a a sweetness and a beauty and a glory for his name and a blessing for your soul. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The life of Joseph, the testimony of Israel, and ultimately, of course, the life and ministry of our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ testify to all of this, that his promises are sure and certain and unassailable, and you can bank on them now and forevermore. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Father, we confess that like entitled little children, we so often demand explanations of you. God, would you instead, rather than entitled children, would you make us godly children, trusting children, and work into our hearts the rich, robust truth of divine providence, your divine providence, working all things together for our good that our lives are not victims of mere happenstance or circumstance or coincidence, but our times are in your hands, and it is in your hands that all things, all courses are borne out, that you channel the hearts of even kings like rivers of water, turning them in whichever direction you would please. Do this. Work this truth and belief and trusting truth, trusting faith into our hearts, so that Jesus' name may have glory and honor in our lives, in our homes, in our witness and in our workplaces and around the world. For Jesus' sake, we do ask it. Amen.